This morning, I've drawn some material from a book called The King's Cross by uh, Tim Keller. I mentioned it last week. It's a great devotional resource uh, if you're wanting to go through the Gospel of Mark and think through Easter. Now, a number of years ago, a number of years ago, I was serving on a mission trip to Mexico. I had been there for the past two, three months. Uh, and when I mention Mexico, please don't think of Cancun or Puerto Vallarta. Those are like nice spots. That's not where we were. Think of something more like this. We've got a picture of that. And that's the Copper Canyon in northern Mexico in the state of Chihuahua. And the only way to get there for our team that we were there with uh, and our, all of our supplies was to drive on this uh, dirt road for several hours. And this was probably like the widest part of that path. This is us actually coming out of it, or coming up, the, heading up the canyon. Now, where we were heading was in the middle of this uh, deep slope on a mountain, and the last part of our journey, journey there consisted of a series of steep switchbacks. Some of them required three-point turns. Let's see if we got that. Yeah, there you go. You don't get, like, the terrain there, but that's a Google Maps picture, so... Um, some of these turns, these switchbacks required three-point turns, and it's, it was really steep. And I don't remember why uh, or how, but I was asked to drive this last part. And um, now the context of that for, for me is that the, a year prior, not even a year prior, I had been in an accident that totaled my car and left me uh, shaken. And, and it's not that I didn't know how to drive anymore. It's just I just wasn't really confident in my driving abilities, you know. And uh, here I was um, being asked to drive this, uh, you know, this big SUV with a, uh, with a team of people and down the steep hill and do these different three-point turns. And uh, I said, yeah, but I remember feeling like I was in it over my head. Yeah, of course, you know how to drive. Um, but I didn't really drive off-roading or, or do these types of things. Um, rarely was I driving down steep hills and rocky hills, uh, nor was I really carrying a bunch of other people. I was like the one who like, enjoyed just driving on my own. The, st the stakes felt a lot higher, you'd say. And I felt like this was way beyond my comfort level and a bit uh, beyond uh, my capacity. So I'm not really sure why I said yes, but I did. And I think that following Jesus is a lot like that. That experience, that feeling that I had that day. Much of what Jesus teaches us and asks you to do stretches you beyond what you feel comfortable with. Stretches you beyond what you actually feel you're personally able to do. And stretches your mind to think in a way you aren't used to thinking. And I think today's teaching would fit that. Today we're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, in Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 35. And this is what it says. They were on their way to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. And again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. Our Father in heaven, you are here in this place. 
And we ask this morning that we would hear from your son, Jesus, and that we would have the ability to understand and respond to what he calls us to. And we pray this in his name. Amen. The big idea this morning is that Jesus came to suffer and lay down his life as a ransom for others, including you. Three times Jesus predicts his death in the Gospel of Mark, his death and his resurrection. And the first time we get it is in Mark 8, verse 31. Jesus, said, uh, Jesus began to teach them, his disciples, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And then in Mark 9, 31, he said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. And now in our third time, our passage today, we get the most detailed version of them all. Chapter 8 told us that he's going to be rejected by the priests and scribes, but Jesus reveals now that he's going to be condemned by them to death, meaning he's going to be tried by them, and that they'll and he'll, he'll be executed by the Gentiles. He's a lot more graphic this time around on this third time about what they will do to him, mocking him, flogging him, and killing him. Still, after each of these predictions, his disciples don't really get it. They don't understand it. They don't know what it is that he is talking about. They miss it. They fail to understand what Jesus is saying about himself and what he is saying about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. But the good news is their failure is to our benefit. And it's like when you're in class and your friend puts up their hand and answers, but their answer is wrong, and you realize that you are also wrong because you had the same idea in your head. And then your teacher begins to instruct and provide an, a correction that actually helps you. Their failure means we get to hear Jesus explaining why he came to do this. In Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus will say, For even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is why he came. Now, this word ransom in Greek is this word lutron, and it means to buy the freedom of a slave or prisoner. And the way you did this, you had to pay a large, costly, uh, make a large, costly payment that could match the value of that servant or the debt that they owed. Jesus came to offer his life as a substitute for many, in the place of many, instead of many. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to be served by the enslaved, I actually came to serve the enslaved and to purchase their freedom by giving my life as a substitute. Before moving forward, though, in our passage and looking at what the, uh, how the disciples respond to what Jesus says, we need to ask this question, why would Jesus have to suffer and die as a ransom for many? Why would he have to do that? And the short of it is because of sin. We were made by God for God, to know God, and to live with God. And sin is living in reference to what we alone believe is best. We believe, what we believe is right, true, and good. Sin is living without reference to God. God is the author and sustainer of life. And so each one of us, when we live in this way, where we live without reference to him, do this. We sin. It's this refusal to believe that God is good, true, trustworthy. And there's an effect of this. The effect is that when we live in this way, we deceive ourselves and spin illusions to redefine our bad decisions as good ones. We're compelled by our selfish urges and desires to act for our own benefit at the expense of other people. And we fail to love God and others. 
Now, there's consequences to this type of living, though. And three really quickly are that it incurs a debt. Sin incurs a debt. We incur a debt to God. Sins are like demerits that progressively build a wall that separate us from God. Sin leads to relational and spiritual breakdown. Living without reference to God doesn't lead to flourishing. But conflict, pain, and the absence of peace. And three, sin leads to death. The Bible says that the wages of sin are, are death. Sin rejects God, who's the author of life, and if you reject the author of life, what you get is not life. Not immediately, but eventually. You die. Sin makes sense of why God had to come to us in Jesus. Jesus came to suffer and lay down his life as a payment and substitute for you and I. And remember that that thing about, like, being in over your head, that feeling of just kind of like, oh, this is beyond me? That's the disciples. That's the disciples because they still don't understand what Jesus is doing when he tells them that he will die. And we know this because Mark, the writer, tells us. If you read on in this chapter, right after Jesus' prediction, this is what uh, we are told. In verse 35, Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, Jesus, and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. Jesus said, What do you want me to do for you? This is like the disciples saying, Jesus, I'm going to ask you, And I'm going to ask you something, but you need to say yes before I ask you, okay? Just agree to my terms before I ask. Promise you will say yes. Promise you will do whatever I ask you to do. And Jesus uh, is gentle and gracious. He doesn't say, are you kidding me? Let's try that again. Start with Lord. He He doesn't do that. He's like, do you guys recognize who you're speaking with? No, he doesn't do that either. He just says, what would you like? He doesn't agree to their terms, but he listens and says, what do you want? And they reply, let us sit at your right hand, at your right and the other at your left in your glory. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? Now, this phrase, if you're not really familiar, is kind of weird, both of them, what Jesus says and what the disciples ask for. In your glory, for them meant, hey, Jesus, when you're seated on your throne as a king, as the king over all of the earth, and your kingdom is established, we want you to make us your left and your right-hand guys. Make me your chief of staff, your prime minister. You're the king. Just make us number, number two and number three. Now, there's an irony with what they are asking for, though. And that irony is that you will see Jesus in his glory in Mark's gospel. It's just not exactly what the disciples are envisioning. See, the glory that Jesus reveals, the glory of God, is actually made known on the cross when Jesus is crucified. Jesus will be enthroned as king, and he will be crowned, but his throne is the cross. He's crowned, and he's got a plaque over his head, calling him king. And while it looks like it's his defeat, it's actually him being enthroned over all of the human powers and cosmic powers. He's enthroned over the seen and unseen world. And to his left and to his right, as he's on the cross, are criminals. Jesus says something really strange to the the disciples. He's like, look, first of all, you guys don't understand what you're asking for. But second of all, can you drink this cup? Can you be baptized into the baptism that I am baptized into? And those are... uh, Even if you grew up in the church, those are just really weird ways of talking. 
and it's not language we use all the time. So what is going on here? There's two things. They are, uh, both of these are metaphors for suffering and death. In the Bible, the cup was almost always a metaphor for God's just judgment against evil in the world. Like in Psalm 75, it says, It is God who judges. He brings one down. He exalts another. In the hand of the Lord is a cup full of foaming wine mixed with spices. He pours it out, and all the wicked of the earth drink it down to its very dregs. The cup was this metaphor for God's judgment against evil in the world. Baptism was this metaphor for being immersed. But Jesus specifically here is is referencing being immersed into calamity, into hardship, into suffering. Jesus is saying, look, I'm going to drink this cup, the cup of God's wrath against human evil. I will not experience just a little sprinkle of it. I will plunge myself into an overwhelming experience of suffering. I will experience judgment and death. I will pay the ransom that wipes out the debt of sin and sets captives free. And the slavery we're talking about here is a spiritual kind of slavery, this cosmic spiritual evil. And that's what happens and what Jesus does on the cross. He pays a ransom to wipe out the debt of sins that you and I have committed by giving his life. He purchases your freedom. You, he owed no debt. He was sinless, and he exchanges his sinless, debtless life for yours. He drinks the cup. Now, here's why we need to know this. Because the cross is the reason that you and I can be confident that God actually loves us. Now, some of you will hear this and say, look, I don't really like that word wrath, and I don't like the idea of, of, of God, a God of wrath. I want a God of love. And that's because you're thinking of wrath and anger in the way of humans, expressed by broken human beings. To paraphrase John's thought, God's wrath is this. It's God's personal, righteous, and constant hostility towards evil. His committed refusal to compromise with evil and his resolve to condemn evil. The reason God's so hostile towards evil is that it is destructive to that which he loves most. So you and I can love someone or something, and because of that love, we will experience anger. Think about someone, like, think about it. When someone you love is hurt or abused in some way, are you not grieved? Are you angered at what has happened? If someone mistreats your child, will you not feel anger? If you witness someone else being mistreated before your eyes, won't you feel upset? Of course you will. You get upset when someone mistreats themselves because you care about them. When you see the way they, they treat their own body or, or the, what's going on in their life, it makes you feel angry when you care about them. If you don't get upset, it's more often than not because you don't actually don't care. You don't care about that person or maybe your heart has been hardened or you've grown cynical. Your love causes you to be opposed to abuse mistreatment, and hurt. Now, God's anger and wrath is not like ours. God's anger is not petty. God's wrath is a function of his goodness and his love. He's not okay with evil. Tim Keller, he'll put it like this. Look, if you don't believe in a God of wrath, you have no idea of your value. 
A God without wrath has no need to go to the cross and suffer incredible agony and die in order to save you. Picture on the left a God who pays nothing in order to save you. And picture on the right the God of the Bible who, because he's angry at evil, must go to the cross, absorb the debt, pay the ransom, and suffer immense torment. How do you know? How much the free love God loves you or how valuable you are to him. Well, his love is just a concept. You don't know at all. This God pays no price in order to love you. But Jesus, who is God, shows you you're so valuable to him that he'd go to the cross for you, that he'd lay down his life as a ransom for you. You only understand his love and how deeply valued you are to him if you understand the extent that he goes. I will lay down my life for you, Jesus says. And the cross reveals his love for you. Because on the cross, he is giving his life as that payment for your sin. He's taking the consequences of your sin by dying in your place and making it so that you can be rightly related to God and in turn, others. And it costs him everything. Jesus says, that's my purpose. That's why I've come. Now, if we could pause that for a moment, there's something else that is striking about what happens in this encounter with his disciples. And it is what Jesus says to his disciples next. He says, look, can you, James and John, drink this cup? Can you be baptized into this? In other words, are you willing to step into my experiences and to participate in my suffering? And listen to what the disciples say, because I don't think it's what I would be saying. Verse 39, we can. They answered, yes, we can do it. I'm in. I'll drink that cup. I'll be baptized into what you're baptized into, Jesus. And Jesus says to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at the right, my right hand or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. When the ten heard about this, they became indignant with James and John, probably because they just got beat to the punch. They were thinking of it first. Hey, make us number one and two here. Then Jesus called them all together and says, Hey, you know, those who are regarded as ruler of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus says, look, you are right. You will drink the cup, but you have no idea what it will mean for you. If you're going to share in my kingdom, you must share in my suffering. You want to be on top of my kingdom? Then you must run to the bottom and serve. You want to be one of the top dogs? Then you must suffer with me. There's this connection between suffering with Jesus and being with Jesus in his glory, and they don't get it yet. They just want the glory. But Paul in Romans 8, he's begun to understand this, and he writes in Romans 8, verse 17, Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God, and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. Why has it got to be like that? David Garland writes, Because no one who enthrones the old values of power without ethics and sacrifice can reign with Jesus. You cannot hold on to the old way of leading and, and having power if you're going to be with Jesus. 
If the declaration in this message today is, look, Jesus came to suffer and lay down his life as a ransom for others, the implication for you and I is if you're going to follow Jesus Christ, you will suffer too. When you follow Jesus, you will participate in his sufferings. It's part of the deal. Jesus doesn't say, hey, you might have, you might have to drink this cup, just a heads up, prepare yourself, okay? Just keep an eye out for it. He says, you will drink the cup. You will be baptized into this too. You follow Jesus long enough, and in life, you will suffer because of it. And so just as we have to trust Jesus to be leader and authority of our life, we also will have to trust him when we walk through suffering. Now, what does this suffering look like, though? It can't just be, oh, I, I can't do this anymore. That's, that's my cross to bear. That, that's not quite what's going on here. So what does this participating in his suffering look like? Well, suffering occurs when there's a gap between the things you long for and the circumstances of your life. And the greater the gap, the greater the suffering. When we come to Jesus and we begin to follow him, we experience this gap in many ways. One of the things that happens when we spend time with Jesus is we become aware of the gap between who we are and who he is. We recognize his holiness, his goodness, his love, but we also recognize how short we fall from it. We want to be patient parents. We want to be selfless spouses. We want to be loyal friends. We want to be generous people with our time, with our money. We want to be a people who are slow to anger and quick to listen. And yet one of the things that happens when we come to Jesus is that he makes us aware of how destructive our sin is to ourselves, to others. And so we feel this gap between his holiness and the kind of people we currently are. Paul will talk about, even though I am following Jesus, I f he feels this tension about doing the things he doesn't want to do and not doing the things he wants to do. Is that the kind of suffering that Jesus says we will share in? Yes, and more. When you trust Jesus and follow him, we begin to have our heart broken for what breaks is. And so we feel this gap between what Jesus intended for the world and where the world is. Jesus will mourn over all that stands against him and his plan for creation. And we will too. We will have this sense within us. It wasn't meant to be this way. We will grieve over all that has gone wrong and goes wrong in the world. Broken relationships, broken families, broken ways of relating to God, others, and the earth. We'll feel that gap. Is this the kind of suffering Jesus is saying we will share with him? Yes and more. When we encounter Jesus and we hear of the kingdom that he is ushering in, it is amazing. It takes our breath away. But upon seeing our current moment and the gap between what will be, it can feel heartbreaking. We long for the kingdom of God to come in its fullness. Are these the kinds of things that Jesus says we will suffer? Yes. You might say all of these are just the beginnings of participating in his sufferings. These are the things you begin to suffer because the longings of Jesus are becoming your longings. And you're beginning to see the gap. And there's this tangible and felt gap between them and your circumstances. But I think Jesus is talking about more than this. When we attach ourselves to Jesus when we commit ourselves to Jesus, when we seek to follow him, we will experience a felt gap, but also a clashing. 
a clashing between the kingdom of heaven and the world. Unite yourself to Jesus and you will participate in his rejection by the world. The world here meaning all human beings and systems that are opposed to him. Jesus in John 15 says, look, if the world hates you, he's talking to his disciples, if the world hates you, keep, him, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would have loved you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. So if they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will also obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name. For they do not know the one who sent me. Unite yourself to Jesus. And you will participate in his experiencing the hostility of the world. Jesus will say in Matthew 5, verse 11 and 12, Blessed are you, flourishing are you, you're in sync with the kingdom of heaven, when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, he says. Rejoice and be God, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. But there's more. Re unite yourself to Jesus, and you will participate in being hated by Satan. Satan is opposed to, opposed to God. He wants glory, he wants power, and he wants to enslave creation and undermine all of God's purposes in the world and in your life. And when you attach yourself to Jesus, you're not enslaved anymore. You're not in debt anymore. You're not blind anymore. You are a threat. You are a citizen of the kingdom of God, and there's this clashing of the kingdoms happening in the unseen realm, but it gets expressed and felt in the physical. You are a herald of God's healing and liberating love. You are a herald of God's cleansing power. You are living in the way of Jesus, and so you will experience opposition, not just from others who don't get it, but from principalities and powers, these spiritual forces. Look at the, what the disciples, what happens to them as Jesus is going to be crucified. They face hostility and opposition. And the night Jesus is betrayed, he is betrayed by one of his closest 12 disciples, the infamous one, Judas. He's betrayed by him. But all the other guys, the 11, they all run off. None of them stick with Jesus when all the hard things start to happen. They all abandon him. They hop off of the way of the cross because it gets too painful. It gets too difficult. The pain is too great. Yet listen to what Jesus tells Simon before all of this goes down in Luke 20. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. There's this opposition that you and I face, but there's also a king in Jesus who intercedes on your behalf, who understands that you may hop off of that path, but he prays that you can actually turn back. He intercedes on your behalf. The temptation for you and I as we face this different hardship, suffering, opposition, clashing, feeling the gap, will to be get off of the way of Jesus, to get off of the way of the cross, to avoid the way. Because that gap will feel so wide that one of the things that just feels natural is to get off of it, to change your circumstances, to avoid this path of suffering. 
You want to change your behavior. Maybe you'll, you'll hide who God says you are. You'll do things to minimize that. And that makes sense. But why, then, should we attach ourselves? We know that even though these, all these disciples, the 11 of them, they get it wrong, and yet at the, in the end, they end up returning and following Jesus, and actually many of them laying down their own lives because they refuse to deny that they are one of his disciples. So why should we attach ourselves if there's a promise of suffering? It's not really like a great sell. It's not a pitch. It's not like that at all. It's the opposite. It's kind of like, uh, I don't know if this is for me. Happy for you, but not for me. Why should we do this? Why should we attach ourselves to Jesus? Because something happens to us as we suffer with Jesus. We're being transformed. Daryl Johnson will say, look, the primary place where we experience Christ's resurrection power is by participating in his suffering. Belong to Christ and enter into his sufferings, and in those sufferings then experience the power of the resurrection. For where else does resurrection take place but in the place of suffering? Do not be afraid to be drawn by Jesus into his suffering. That's the place where resurrection life is found. And it is in the fellowship of his suffering that this deeply rooted desire to live independently gets crucified and buried in his love for us. Christ regularly leads us through experiences that crucify our flesh. And the more the flesh dies, the more we begin to live in the power of his risen life. As we suffer with Jesus... Our flesh, that part of us that wants to live without reference to him, is being put to death. As we suffer with Christ, our deep-rooted desire to live independent of him is crucified, and it gets buried by his love for us. As we suffer with Jesus, we begin to experience the resurrection life and power of Jesus. That's why we can still follow him despite this promise that we'll drink a cup and be baptized into his baptism. Father in heaven, we come before you and we recognize, Lord, that this teaching is hard. And yet there is something within us that wants to follow, that wants to experience that resurrection life, that wants to experience this freedom from our selfishness, from our pride, from our anger, from our sin, and we see that Jesus says that it is possible in him. And so this morning we ask that you would lead us and help us. All of us are in different places and some of us trust you more and some of us feel like we can't even trust you yet. We ask for courage. And we ask that you would help us with the little belief that we have that you say you can use that Faith as small as a mustard seed. We want to trust you and learn to trust you more. We want to experience your life in us and be transformed. And so we ask that you would do that in us today and in this week. And we pray this in your strong and mighty name. Amen. We're going to take communion.